Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Tuesday the 17th of August uh, in the afternoon right now, uh, and it's been a few weeks actually since we posted an episode. Uh, And the reason for that is that we have been preparing a double episode with recently retired diplomat Gary Quinlan, who of course most recently was Australia's ambassador in Jakarta. But then the weekend happened, um, by which I mean the fall of Kabul and the total takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban. And we feel compelled to talk about that. So hence, we're doing a sort of emergency episode today and we'll post Gary's episodes next week. So let's get right into it. So on Sunday, as everyone will know, the Taliban took Kabul after an astonishingly rapid advance over the last few weeks where they swept across the entire country. For a quick recap, uh, on April 14, uh, Joe Biden announced a troop withdrawal to be completed by September 11. On the 4th of May, the Taliban launched a large offensive against Afghan forces in Helmand province in the south, but also attacked other provinces. By early June, fighting was raging in 26 of the country's 34 provinces, On 2 July, US troops pulled out of Bagram Air Base, which was their main military base in the country. And that really signified their departure from their involvement in Afghanistan. By late July, the Taliban controlled half the country's districts, and the first provincial capital to fall was Zaranj, uh, which happened on the 6th of August. And then nine days later, it was all over. From what I could tell in the end, the Taliban basically walked into Kabul um, with Afghanistan's president, uh, Ashraf Ghani, fleeing the country, along with obviously the entire US presence. Um, The US military secured the airport and maybe it appeared to have made a deal with the new government to allow them to evacuate. I'm not sure. But of course, what we've all seen is these iconically horrifying images that have come out over the past few days for example, of people desperately trying to hang on to aircraft that were taking off from Kabul airport. Um, And also one I saw of a man literally whitewashing posters of women from walls in obviously a foreboding sign of what is to come. Alan, let's just start with your initial reactions, perhaps in the context of the end of the Vietnam War or even the Soviet departure from Afghanistan in 1988. Okay, well, the the first thing to say is that I wasn't just surprised but astonished by the uh, speed with which this happened and the the lack of public preparedness. And that all suggests that American intelligence didn't foresee the wholesale nature of the collapse of Afghan government forces, and that's a big consequential intelligence failure because it's inconceivable, I think, that the administration would have handled things in the same way if they'd been anticipating events unfolding in the way they did. And therefore, there was an impact on US standing in the world and the Afghan people that might have been different. So we'll no doubt hear more about that in the months to come. I suppose one one of the things that was shaping my views was that when Soviet troops left Afghanistan, I was working in Canberra on great power relations, 
And the surprise at that time was how long it took the Mujahideen to threaten the capital. Someone in my branch was actually running a book on it. So I guess I was expecting something like that again. The second thing, just in terms of immediate reactions, uh, Darren, is that we just know, including from friends in Canberra who came here as Hazara refugees, what anxiety and pain these developments are having for so many Afghans, especially those separated from their families. So the weeks and months ahead are going to be very difficult. Yeah, Alan, I completely share your surprise, you know, not that it happened, but at the speed of which events unfolded and how the US and the Australian government seem to have been caught off guard. I also share your sadness, mostly for the people of Afghanistan who you say face such a difficult time ahead. But I also want to mention people that I know personally, friends who have spent major parts of their careers working on this issue and in Afghanistan. You know, working in that country was so difficult and extracted a huge personal cost in many cases. And to have all of that effort end like this will be is utterly devastating for them. And I think also difficult for those who haven't gone through similar experiences to understand fully. You know, I'm seeing and hearing such an intense expression of anger, frustration and distress from people I know. It, it's just so deeply personal for them. But one more point, trying to step back for a moment. I have been in equal parts frustrated but also bemused by the online discussion. There have been comments, tweets usually, of such breathtaking stupidity and insensitivity in the last few days from around the world but also just of certainty about what this all means for the long-term trajectory of world politics. And we're only a few days yeah. in. And I guess in some ways, Alan, we are adding to this cacophony, but we have talked about this issue several times in recent months, although neither of us are experts. So with that caveat that we're not experts on this issue, let's try to be useful. The common framing of Biden's decision here to withdraw was either get out sooner rather than later, or pledge to stay forever or indefinitely. Do you think that's an effective way of framing the policy choice? Or do we need a lot more substantive knowledge to think about and inform the policy options facing the United States and to some extent Australia? Well, look, I, I think that framing is really pretty accurate and we don't need more substantive knowledge, as you put it, in order to make judgments. I know there's a view among some members of the commentariat that the US should have been prepared for its presence in Afghanistan to morph into something you know, more like what it has in Germany. But I just don't think the American people were up for that or that American interests uh, required it. So I I do have sympathy for Biden's question of if not now, when? Um, obviously, the sudden collapse of government forces and the flight of the president is not what the administration wanted to see. But I'm sceptical that even a more extended and graceful departure would have altered that final endpoint. And it's also worth noting that if this was to be where it ends, then at least speed has guaranteed apparently, less bloodshed than we might have feared. Yeah. Yeah. One of the better pieces I've read in the past few days wasn't written 
in the haste of these events, but back in January 2020, the author is Paul Miller, and I'll post it in the show notes, who was a former official who worked both under Bush and Obama on these issues. And at the time, Miller was writing in response to the Washington Post publishing the Afghanistan Papers, which happened in December of 2019, the previous month. And these papers documented hundreds of interviews conducted by the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And together, these sort of interviews, these papers represent a kind of oral history of the war, and they purport to show years of policy failure. The headline-grabbing stuff was the apparent disconnect between what officials believed privately and the optimistic public messaging about the, the war succeeding. And I should note, this point has been refuted by the Pentagon. But beyond that, there really is a library's worth of analysis that you could do and hopefully is being done on these papers. For example, on the feasibility of nation building, on the constraints imposed by US domestic politics, and on a general lack of coherence in US strategy or whether there was a lack of coherence. Miller's most interesting argument to me is quite simple, that the US did too little nation building that there was a window of time immediately after the 2001 invasion that was critical, but that the Bush administration almost immediately turned its focus to Iraq and did almost no nation building in those first five years, focusing only on counter-terrorism, this so-called light footprint approach. And even once there was a shift in strategy, Miller says, quote, despite Bush and Obama's aspirational rhetoric, about rebuilding Afghanistan, the US's actual policy choices as reflected in its budgetary and deployment decisions, what might be called its de facto strategy or revealed preference, prioritised killing and capturing jihadist militants while investing just enough in counterinsurgency and stability operations to preserve operational freedom for American counterterrorism forces. Now, Alan, we could do an entire podcast season, multiple seasons, in fact, on these past 20 years. For example, one thing that's always interested me was the drug policy, initially coming in and torching the crops of rural farmers as their first exposure to foreign occupiers, and thus losing hearts and minds off the bat, to reversing that and actually protecting poppy farmers by the early 2010s. But look, that's part of a longer conversation. My point is essentially to agree with you, the causes of the situation facing Biden when he entered office, and indeed those facing Trump when he entered office, were years, if not decades, in the making. And this isn't to excuse the precise choices that either president made, but simply to observe that there was a path dependency to these things that was quite powerful, I think, by the time each came into office. In an early episode, I made the point that the ongoing US presence of US troops was relatively cheap and thus potentially sustainable. And I want to walk that back. I think that view was incorrect. For one thing, a lot of Afghani troops were dying, even if US troops were not. And second, Trump's withdrawal agreement had not only bought time for the US in theory to prepare for withdrawal, but also given that it involved a pause in US air operations, and I had just seen that the previous year, 2019, had so seen the most bombs dropped in any year of the war. This pause, this peace agreement, effectively gave time for the Taliban to increase their own capabilities. So I'm sceptical that an indefinite small-scale commitment would have been possible. 
we need to consider, I think, the possibility that US troops could well have become targets once again. To me, it seems quite plausible that this dichotomy of leave versus stay forever captures enough of the strategic landscape to be an adequate simplification. But yeah, others may disagree. Now, of course, the president himself is getting attacked from many directions. What looks especially bad was a press conference the president gave in early July, and I'll read out the journalist's question and Biden's answer. Question. Mr. President, some Vietnamese veterans see echoes of their experience in this withdrawal in Afghanistan. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam, with some people feeling dot, dot, dot? The president responds, none whatsoever, zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy, six if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the South, the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy of the United States in Afghanistan. It's not at all comparable, end quote. Of course, the only response we can <laughs> say is, ouch. Um, you know, smart people I respect have commented that this will tarnish Biden's legacy. Uh, others have gone further and say that it will undermine the US's reputation long term. You know, it's sort of the whole decline of empire narrative. Gideon Ruckman, for example, of the Financial Times wrote that these events fit, quote, perfectly within two key messages pushed by the Chinese and Russian governments. First, that US power is in decline. Second, that American security guarantees cannot be relied upon. If the US will not commit to a fight against the Taliban, there will be a question mark over whether America really would go to war with China or Russia, end quote. Alan, where do you sit on questions of legacy and credibility here? I'm not persuaded by the darkness of most of the current interpretations of what has happened and what's likely to follow. I was posted in Singapore at the time of the fall of Saigon, and the differences between Kabul in 2021 and then seem enormous to me. Um, it's, it's true that then as now the US was deeply divided politically, but the Vietnam War was a far more important part of those differences than Afghanistan is now. In fact, just like China policy, Biden and Trump, who in some ways you know, personify those political differences, have not been at all far apart on their underlying aims on the war. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to have anything like the same impact on domestic American confidence as Saigon did. It will certainly strengthen the shift that's already underway from the Kennedy-esque belief that America should pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship to pursue the survival and success of liberty to a harder-edged focus on America's immediate interests on America first. But the American people aren't just aren't going to be nearly as traumatised or as surprised by the withdrawal from Kabul. For America's allies, uh, in fact, the images from the fall of Saigon didn't matter nearly as much at the time as Nixon's earlier Guam doctrine in uh, July 1969 had done. And that, of course, made it clear that US partners would need to do more in their own defence. So in the contemporary case, I really doubt that Asians, including you know, hard heads in Beijing, 
will read all that much into events in Afghanistan for the future of American power in the Indo-Pacific, or if they do, they're going to be uh, very foolish, I think, because I don't think the comparisons are there. One was about, uh, you know, a sense that we needed to withdraw from the world. This, I think, is a, is more a sense that we need to withdraw from conflicts that are not getting anywhere in a particular part of the world. Mm. I, I think your point about the longer-term scarring of the US population itself following Vietnam is a very interesting one, and I think does make the comparisons not that apt. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about how the rest of the world is viewing the United States, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I think there hasn't been enough on the impact of this on American society, and that, I, as you say, I don't think it's going to make much difference. But looking internationally, you know, to me, I think the major short-term impact on the US is not on questions of sort of credibility, but on perceptions of competence or incompetence. You know, I saw it reported that the US government had believed Kabul could fall within 90 days. And instead, of course, it took a couple of weeks. And Dan Dresner wrote a great Washington Post column on this, and I'll post it, arguing that Biden's argument that America is back is being harmed because of this botched withdrawal, making the US just look incompetent. And I think that's correct. Um, second, you know, I'm sceptical that the impotence of the US in this context really translates into its Indo-Pacific strategy. You know, this episode shows, of course, the folly of nation building, especially in a place literally called the graveyard of empires, but that it doesn't say much about US interests elsewhere or their capacity to protect them. The US remains a powerful actor, an actor that most in the Indo-Pacific want to see more involved, especially economically as well as strategically. And I cannot see how assessments of this admittedly staggering failure really link in any way to the behaviour of the rest of the region. I've got a second point. It's beyond clear, I think, on the legacy issue that there is one thing that Biden has focused upon above all else, which is what his presidency means in the context of following Trump. Yes, that has an international dimension, but mostly this is about domestic politics. An interesting dynamic in the 2020 general election was how, quote, not online Biden's and his team were, that he and his team basically ignored the advice of Twitter, and that was the right thing to do. You know, he, he won It's back, always the right thing to do, Dan. <laughs> he won back just enough of the not extremely online of middle America to defeat Trump. And I wonder about that dynamic here too. A healthy majority of Americans wanted the US out of Afghanistan. Trump knew that and responded to it, as is Biden. Of course, Biden is going to get attacked hard by the GOP in a cynical political ploy, and he's going to be criticised. He is being criticised forcefully and emotionally by foreign policy specialists, you know, the famous DC blob or the deep state. And, of course, those who served in Afghanistan on this issue feel very passionately about this issue, and I think that they should. But will this have meaningful political impact on US politics? I'm not so sure, especially if Biden can get the infrastructure plan through, let alone the larger budget that is supposed to follow. And to put it an Australian angle on this as we pivot to Australia, Alan, on Sunday, Sunday was the day Kabul fell. And so I, I watched ABC News online, and this was the New South Wales evening news edition. And one could plausibly argue that the fall of Kabul is like the monumental event in world politics this year, as big as the fall of Saigon. 
and it was happening in real time. And so I thought to myself, isn't this the perfect thing for a news broadcast, right? Especially given the two decade involvement of Australia, our troops, media that had been there. I thought, well, you know, we, we should be seeing this leading the news. And instead, what we got were for the first 15 minutes of the broadcast was 15 minutes on COVID, right? COVID, and you yeah, know, the last too. part just before they got to, to Kabul was there were two new cases in the ACT, right? That was where they finished. I mean, it was five or six packages back to back until we got to Afghanistan. Now, of course, the following day, we had some great analysis on Monday, but this lack of real-time breaking news dimension, like not when journalism should be at its most compelling, was quite revealing. I'm not saying it was a mistake. I'm saying it is indicative of where Australia is at right now, that we are focused on COVID. We had a horrible weekend. We've had a horrible few weeks. This is what people care about the most. Your domestic Trump's international. And this it has always been thus, but I think these constraints just seem even stronger this week. So I think that matches up, you know, sort of quite neatly with where I see American politics going on this issue as well. But pivoting fully to Australia now, Alan, look, how are you thinking about this issue from the point of view of Australian foreign policy? Well, let me go back to a, a bit of history on this, because I think the history is being lost in the urgency of the immediate here, including in discussions about Australia. Very soon after the 9-11 attacks, John Howard announced, um, I think it was the 2nd of October, that Australian special forces and aircraft would be sent to Afghanistan under a UN Security Council resolution, which gave states the right to use all means to combat terrorism. So that's important, I think. You know, this was an operation which from the beginning had a United Nations sanction that Iraq, for example, didn't have. Yes. US operations began five days later and our special forces were supplemented by Navy, Army and Air Force elements by November, so incredibly quickly. Uh, the Taliban had been driven from power and Australia made it clear that any military commitment on our part would be quick and early and that we wouldn't hang around for what Howard called the uh, pacification and reconstruction uh, stages. So late 2002, our special forces were withdrawn. And as we know, the US passed formal responsibility for operations to NATO, its first commitment outside Europe. And it's really remarkable how this has been ignored in the commentary of recent days. I don't know that in any, I think, of the commentaries I've read from the US or the official statements, there have been references to the Allies or NATO or uh, all the sort of international dimensions of the uh, force. Anyway, um, uh, by mid 2005, the Taliban was reasserting its power and Canberra felt pressure. I'm not quite sure whether we were pressured or we felt pressure, but one or the other, to recommit forces to an international coalition, which would grow to some 50 nations. We said we would, this is again the Howard government, that we'd do it, but only if we could work with uh, another partner. And that's how we ended up in Tarankout in Oregon province with Dutch forces there. Now, when uh, Obama came to power, he wanted to distinguish the good war, Afghanistan, from the bad war, Iraq, and began describing American aims in terms of a broader 
counterinsurgency strategy, and that was the point at which he brought in 33,000 additional troops. The Australian government, now under Kevin Rudd, began to use similar broader descriptions of our aims. They were never entirely, you couldn't say they were nation building, we never said nation building, but we did talk about reconstruction and aid and so on. But at the same time, Rudd, like Howard before him, was very careful to try to limit Australian operations to the existing operating area of Oruzgan province and to draw clear boundaries around uh, our efforts in Afghanistan. When the Dutch withdrew from Tarrancourt in 2010, we stayed on uh, until the base was closed in October 2013. At that point, although we continued to support NATO, NATO's training mission, our combat operations were over. I think Scott Morrison may be the first Australian Prime Minister to describe our mission in Afghanistan as fighting for freedom. Uh, his, his predecessors were more precise about the terms of their engagement, emphasising countering terrorism and, as with everything else we did in the Middle East, of course, the signal we were sending about our reliability as an American ally. Um, but on the implications for Australia, uh, the government is soon going to have to focus on humanitarian aid and especially on the likely flow of refugees and asylum seekers, which is really for Australian foreign policy the issue that never goes away. And it's going to be interesting to see how the government frames its approach and what we do um, and the consequences for Australia could be huge, especially in light of the PM's freedom language. Mm. I guess in the shorter term, there is this thorny issue of recognition ahead. I mean, I suppose we'll have no choice but to recognise the non-democratically elected government, right? I mean, Beijing, for example, has already come out saying that it, quote, respects the choice and will of the Afghan people, end quote. Now, I won't pass that statement or, or the meeting of the Chinese foreign minister with Taliban officials a little while ago, but things are already moving on this point. So, what will Australia do here, do you think? You and I have talked on the podcast before about the uncertainty of whether Australian policy on the recognition of states rather than individual governments has in fact changed back again. And if anyone out there knows the answer to it, I'd love to hear it. Assuming that it's not, though, and that we still recognise states, not governments, the question is how we choose to deal with the government and in what way. Uh, we currently have a sort of virtual embassy to Afghanistan operating from nearby countries and presumably they're working hard now on evacuation and humanitarian issues. I notice Boris Johnson has called on other states not to deal with the Taliban. That would make sense if we thought we could leverage concessions on human rights issues but I'm not convinced. I would rather be in there and not leaving it to others. Maurice Payne has said that Australia will have a very strong focus on what the formation of any entity that calls itself the government of Afghanistan looks like. And we, with our partners, I know that I share this view with the United States and the United Kingdom, will be watching that very closely. So presumably that means that we're going to move in lockstep with the Americans and the Brits 
And by the way, Darren, is it surprising that Beijing should be having a meeting with the Taliban? It's a it's a neighbouring country, after all, and the Americans have been deep in discussions with them. No, not surprising at all. The, the contrast is interesting, though. My assumption here is that domestic politics does not constrain Beijing in pursuing its interests here, and that enables them to pivot quickly. I saw that Prime Minister Morrison had just released a video that was speaking directly to Australian veterans, conceding that we won't be able to help all Afghans who worked with and supported Australian troops, which is very sad. But I think to do anything at all to help them is probably going to require us to work with the Taliban. And we haven't even sort of spoken about the fact that we haven't got all of the Australians out yet, and it's unclear when exactly that's going to happen. Anyway, Alan... To wrap things up, can we try to end on a hopeful note? I've been running thought experiments in my mind to try, however quixotically, to create the theoretical possibility of a silver lining. And the best that I can come up with is the idea that Afghan people have seen what life looks like when some liberalism is allowed to enter into their society. Yes, unfortunately, one of those byproducts was greed and corruption. But another one was human flourishing, to some extent at least. And so for the generation that witnessed this, my hope or my question is, will they be able to influence politics? They probably will need leverage backed by the use of force, you know, the the possibility of a return to civil war. That seems inevitable. But my question and my hope is that there will be something there, some leverage there to convince the Taliban to share a little bit of power and to check some of their most radical um, impulses. I mean, can you add to my optimism at all, Alan? Uh, Optimism's uh, too strong, Darren, but but I'll go along with you on hope. Um, After 20 years of the American and coalition presence in Afghanistan, including the work of all those, you know, of your friends that you've been speaking about earlier, the country in terms of the infrastructure in social terms, partly because of the spread of mobile communications really is very different from the place that the Taliban controlled last time. And the Taliban itself, partly through the negotiations with the Americans, has also been more engaged with the outside world rather than just with Pakistan and the Gulf Arabs. So we can at least hope that these changes will impose some constraints on a return to the worst aspects of human rights abuses that we saw last time. It's also possible that the speed and ease of the Taliban return may reflect, I don't know, um, understandings or deals that have been made at the local levels in some parts of the country, limiting the chance of further civil war with all the civilian casualties that that would involve. But look, to be honest, that's a fingers crossed sort of assessment on my part. Mm. Okay, well, thanks, Alan. The last thing I'll say is that in the show notes, I'll post a link to a website which has a list of Afghan charities that's been going around Twitter I know this is unusual for the podcast. It's not something that we'll make a habit of doing. Uh, But today, this is our way of acknowledging to those of you who are deeply affected by these events that we hear you and we're sorry. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Dominic Yap today for audio editing and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.